0: So many of you know that I love church history, and one of the ways I came to love church history was through reading biographies, reading biographies of the great men and women of the past, David Livingston, Mary Selesor, George Whitfield, Robert Murray McChain, Susanna Spurgeon, you name it, I read it, and it just opened my mind up to vistas new of God's people living in different generations, but serving him so faithfully and wonderfully. And if you're someone who who loves reading a good biography, especially a good Christian biography, you'll know that there's often two, two ways that you can feel after you've finished it. Sometimes you can finish a biography, you can put it down, and you feel inspired. You feel inspired to go and live a life of even greater faithful service to the Lord than you presently are. And then there's other times you can finish a biography and it's been a great read, but you feel discouraged and depressed. Because you look at their faith and their love of Christ and you think, my faith doesn't compare. My love of Christ? Like, I don't think it would lead me there. I remember reading the biography of George Muller and I was left feeling depressed. He's just a man of incredible faith. Well, we come to a passage tonight in... It would be understandable if some of us left here tonight a bit ins- feeling inspired. It would also be in- understandable if we left this evening feeling a bit discouraged and depressed. Because here we have a woman. We're not giving her name here. She's the nameless woman. And she does this incredible act of devotion to Jesus. And it's inspiring. But when you now think about would we have done it if we were there? Perhaps not. But what I want you to see is, I preached this in the past, and I think I preached it wrong. Not not here, but in Cumbernauld, early on in my my ministry. And I think I made the main point, the woman. But under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I've come to see that the scripture, Matthew, he wants us to see that the the one who we're supposed to be captivated and captured by, it's not a woman. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the one who is worthy. Worthy of all that we are and all that we have. Well, let's work our way through this passage and I'll I'll show you how. So the the passage divides into three sections, verses 1 to 5, then verses 6 to 13, then verses 14 to 16. We're going to see that Jesus prepares his disciples for his impending death. We're going to see that the religious leaders plot Jesus' death. We're going to see this nameless woman brings a precious, precious um, jar of ointment to anoint Jesus, to prepare him for his death. And then we're finally going to see the, the price that Judas Iscariot was willing to receive to betray Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders, so that he would die look at verses one and two with me when jesus had finished all these sayings just to note: this is matthew's way of saying jesus has just finished the Olivet discourse but he's also just finished all of his public teaching in matthew's gospel and now begins on the way to the cross jesus's private ministry to his disciples Now we're going to get some insight into some of the most intimate exchanges that Jesus ever had with his followers. He said this to his disciples. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Here we get revelation into what was weighing heavily upon the mind and heart of our Lord. His death. This isn't the first time that he's mentioned his death to his disciples. This is actually the third time. He mentioned it in chapter 17. He mentioned it back in chapter 20. It's clear that the the thought that was weighing heavily upon his mind was the thought of his death. And we know, don't we, from the epistles, the, the, the letters of, of Paul and others, that Jesus' death had been on his mind not just throughout his earthly ministry, but it had been on his mind from before he laid the foundation of this earth. In the covenant of redemption, when he and the Father and the Spirit planned and purposed to save a people for himself, they knew that the only means would be through the life, death, and resurrection. We know from the beginning of the Old Testament that the death of Christ was predicted right there in Genesis 3.15. But here it's clear that during Jesus' public ministry, he could not stop thinking about his death. And there is something different about this prediction. You see, in the previous predictions, Jesus has told them exactly what is going to happen. He's going to be betrayed, arrested, flogged, spat on, crucified. But this time, he doesn't just tell them how he's going to die. He tells them when he's going to die. At the Passover. He's so specific. Now, it's because Jesus knew all the detail of his death. But this must have taken the disciples by surprise. This must have caught them off guard. If I mention tonight Christmas, christmas is coming 175 days to christmas not all of you but some of you feel a sense of excitement and eager anticipation well you can be sure that the disciples that the main feast that every every jew looked forward to was the feast of passover it was one of the best meals of the year it was one of the Greatest events of the year, because it was the event where they remembered God's Old Testament redemptive work in Egypt, where he liberated their forefathers through the, 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 the plague of the Passover, where they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death came, and they were saved from the judgment of Almighty God. It was a time of great traditions where everybody would travel up to Jerusalem and they would sing the halal psalms. It was a time with family and friends. And now Jesus seems to put a downer on it because he says, at the Passover, I'm going to die. Now, as as I was thinking about this, it really hit me like the disciples when Jesus said this, should have been like, I get it. You see, a few chapters before, they've just confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And now Jesus says, I'm going to die, and I'm going to die at the Passover. And they'll probably remember back to when they became Christians, and they heard John the Baptist proclaiming that he's the Lamb of God who'll take away the sin of the world. They should have been able to make the connection that Jesus was going to fulfill the Passover because he was the Passover Lamb his blood would be shed so that they'd be saved from the judgment of God. But it's staggering. They don't get it. They don't see it. In fact, one of the most interesting things is we get no sense of their response to what Jesus said to them. Jesus is is, is such a great friend that in these moments where he was sharing what was heavy upon his heart he was doing it because he he was so considerate he was so thoughtful he wanted to prepare his disciples for his impending death i want you to imagine for a moment and some of you won't need to imagine this but i want you to imagine that you've got a dear friend a close friend someone you love someone that you treasure and i want you to imagine that one day they phone you they say can we meet you say, of course. And so you meet up, and as soon as you meet them, you, you sense they have been really awkward. Things don't seem right. And then say, could we just sit down? And then you sit down, and as you look at them, you see tears well up in their eyes. And, you, and your mind is racing. You're thinking, what in the world's going on? And then they say to you, I need to tell you something. I'm just going to come out and straight out and say it. I've been at the doctor's today, and the doctor's told me I'm going to die. And I'm not going to live more than a, a couple of days. How would you respond? What would you do? I reckon that every single pastoral instinct that is in your body would rise to the surface and you would weep with them. You would lament with them. You would tell them how much you love them. You would want them to know that you're going to be with them in this. You would walk away from that meeting and everything in your head, you, you love this person, you treasure this person, you'd be thinking about, how can I be there for this person in these moments? You might even make preparations for their final days. Staggering thing is, Jesus shares this with his disciples, Matthew records absolutely nothing. In fact, Everything indicates that the disciples, every time Jesus predicted his death, it was either in one ear and out the other, or they absolutely put their foot in it. Remember Peter? Jesus, you're not going to die. Get behind me, Satan. So here's Jesus, and he prepares his disciples for his impending death, and they don't seem to get it. If this was a film, the camera now shifts from Jesus having this private, intimate exchange with his disciples straight into Caiaphas' house and it now zooms into the conversation they're having together as they plot Jesus' death. So everybody in Jerusalem, all the pilgrims are making preparations for Passover. Jesus has just been preparing his disciples for his impending death. And now we see here are the religious leaders and they are plotting how they can bring about Jesus' death look at verses 3 and 5 with me then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest jesus by stealth and kill him but they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar among the people now do you see anything that stands out in their statement there well it contradicts what jesus has just said in verse 2 They're plotting his death, and they say, not during the feast of Passover. But Jesus has just said, he's going to die at Passover. And this contrast is deliberate. Matthew is telling us, informing us, that Jesus' death will happen, not because of the plans and the plot of men, but because of the plan and the plot of redemption. Established before the foundation of this earth was laid. This is God's plan and it will come to pass. Just as Jesus said it would happen. These religious leaders, they thought they were the ones in control. Little did they know it's that Jesus is the one who's in complete control. In fact, they thought it would be risky business to kill Jesus during the Passover. And it would have been. But these men with their wicked hearts. Managed to crucify Christ in the middle of the Passover using the very people they were fearful of to incite his crucifixion. Matthew wants us to see the sovereignty of God over the sovereignty of man. God will always bring to pass what he plans and he purposes and there is no one and nothing that will stop it. Brothers and sisters, I want to say to us that we can take great comfort... In this glorious truth, God is sovereign over every single detail of our lives. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a plan for my life. He's got a plan for this church. He's got a plan for the church in Tate's Creek. He's, his purposes will come to pass. And we know in his revealed will in scripture, his plan and purpose for you and for me is that we'd be conformed to the image of Christ. And he'll bring that to pass. His plan and his purpose for LCPC and for TCPC is that these churches will be built by Christ and the gates of hell will not prevail. So we've looked at how Jesus prepared his disciples for his death. We've looked at the religious leaders as they plotted uh, Jesus' death. Now let's look at this precious act of worship by this unnamed woman. Just, just to point this out, if, if you know John's gospel in John chapter 12, we, we read the same account. And there in John's gospel, we were told that this meal in Simon the leper's home took place six days before the Passover. So, so just to help you understand, when Matthew wrote his gospel, not every single thing he wrote was in chronological order. This event happened before the events of verses 1 and 2. But the way Matthew arranged his gospel was because he always wanted to set up a contrast, make a focus, and have a big point. You're going to see that in just a few moments. So just so you know, this event happened six days before the Passover. We know where we are. We're in Jesus' favorite town, Bethany. And he's in the home of Simon the leper. Clearly someone Jesus Jesus has healed him. And he has is, is a huge impact in his life. And Jesus' best friends are there. His best friends in all the world. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Look at verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive, expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. If you and I had been dinner guests at this meal, our eyes would be popping of our head, our jaws would hit the floor. <laughs> This unnamed woman comes in and she takes this very expensive ointment and she pours it all over Jesus. Everybody and their granny knew that this very expensive ointment, this alabaster jai, this would have been the family heirloom. This would have been the family inheritance, the insurance. This would be worth it, at least a year's wages, say the scholars. And here, this woman comes and she she breaks a vial and she pours it all over Jesus' head and all over Jesus' body. Whatever way you look at this, this, is, this isn't a bottle of Old Spice that I might buy, Marina. This is a bottle of the most expensive perfume. It's such an extremely generous gesture. It's arguably this most precious personal possession. And yet she pours it over Jesus everything about the manner of what she does tells us it was an act of love it was an act of devotion it was an act of sacrificial offering it was an act of worship this woman was not concerned about the cost the price, there was no restraint she just gives all that she has to Jesus You know, that's what a true worshipper is. We just give all that we are and half to Jesus. We don't count the cost. We realize that nothing compares in comparison to him, and so he is worthy for everything. Now, up until this point, we've not heard a, a whip from the disciples, but now, now we hear from them. Now at this meal, now they pipe up. If we know what was in Jesus' heart and mind, now we know what's in their heart and mind. Look at what it says in verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? Or this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So these guys, they're red with rage. They're furious. They can't believe what they've just witnessed. My goodness, what's she playing at? What a waste. And interestingly, in John's gospel, in John chapter 12, we know the first one to protest was Judas Iscariot. And John just adds a little note, and by the way, Judas Iscariot had been taking money from the purse. But all the disciples, according to Matthew, and Matthew was one of the disciples, all the disciples clearly joined in in this. Why this waste? They looked at what this woman, this nameless woman, in Matthew's account had done, and they conclude this is a complete and utter waste. Why like, They miss it. They don't see an act of devotion, they don't see an act of love, they don't see an act of worship, they see a waste. You know, so many people in our culture, if you were to tell them, and, you know, those who, who, who aren't people of faith, if you were to tell them that you spend most of your Sunday, you spend most, all your Sundays going to church, some of you not just once but twice in a day he says, is that not a waste of time? Surely you can worship God all the time and everywhere, and you, you don't really need to go to church. It's not a waste. It's easy to look at worship. This this was an act of worship, and, and the disciples, they saw a waste, a waste of money, a waste of time. There, something better could have been done with this. could be put to better use. It's strange, right? That The disciples had no compassion for Jesus, appears when he pre- predicted his death. But now they seem to have compassion for the poor. (laughs) And here's why we know they completely and utterly missed the point. Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. The disciples look at it and they think, waste. Jesus looks at our actions and he says, you want to know what beauty is? This is beauty. And, and, and it's profound that some of your translations might, she's done a good thing to me. You know, the original creation, God is good. God, everything he makes is good and very good. It's the same idea here. Jesus looks on at what this woman has done and he says, this is very good. This is beautiful. This is glorious. Because what she did was what she was made for. This is worship and enjoyment. This is her giving Christ all the glory And this is her enjoying every minute of it as she pours the ointment over him. The point of this passage is to see that Jesus is the object of her worship. We never get her name, but we're so aware that everything that's done is done towards Jesus. Religious leaders plot his death. This woman anoints him for his death. And finally, we'll see that Judas will betray him for money. Now, there's two opinions on what this woman did. The majority of people would say she was not aware what she was doing. In a sense, yes, she got the fact that she was given her an act of devotion, an act of love. Maybe she'd been so overwhelmed at the fact that Jesus had um, raised Lazarus from the dead, because this woman, by the way, is Mary. Maybe she's so overwhelmed that Jesus has, has healed Simon the leper, and this is just a huge way of saying thank you. And, and, and so they think that that's the reason she did this. The minority of commentators say, no, 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 no. This woman knew exactly what she was doing, and I'm, I'm with them. One of the most underrated theologians in the Reformed church is a guy called George Smeaton. And George Smeaton highlights there are very few people in the gospel who get it. But one of them who gets it from the very beginning into the very end is Mary. And do you know why she got it? It's because in Luke 10, she was busy in the kitchen, where's she? She's sitting at Jesus' feet. And, and in that private exchange, what do you think Jesus is telling her? He's telling her exactly what he told all of his disciples. I'm going up to Jerusalem, and there I'll be delivered over, betrayed, and die. At the Passover, I'll be killed. And if you can go back to your hypothetical situation, but at this time it's not hypothetical. Mary heard Jesus predict his death, and she thought, if my Savior is going to die, I need to prepare him for his death. I'll embalm them with ointment because I love him. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. This beautiful thing that she's done is an act of worship and it is preparation for Christ's death. You see, I said the disciples didn't make the connection between who Jesus was and the Passover, but honestly, I think Mary did make the connection. Man, there's something so encouraging about that, so inspiring about that. The disciples are slow to learn, but not Mary, and not Simon, and not Anna, not others in the Gospels, the, 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 the little characters, that they, they don't have all the prominence. And, and, and here we see that Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in, the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You know what I love? She worships Jesus. She honors Jesus. And Jesus says, she's going to go down in the history of the world as the greatest undertaker. <laughs> she's going to go down in the history of the world any time this gospel is preached. I'm here, here, me, here, am, here am I preaching the gospel tonight. And we're remembering her. We're remembering her act of love, her act of devotion, her act to prepare Jesus for his death. Now, why did she do it? Because she loved him. Why did she love him? Because when she sat at his feet, he told her what he was going to do for her. He told her that he loved her and he was going to die for her and die for all of his people. He told her. She knew that he was a Christ. She made the connection that if he's a Christ and he's going to die at Passover, he's going to be the fulfillment of all the Passover. He's going to be the Lamb who sheds his blood, and it's going to be for me. Remember in the encounter in John eleven. She knew that there's a resurrection to come. She's got confidence in Jesus and who he is and the resurrection. And it's when she she, she she's got this knowledge of the unfathomable love and care and commitment of Christ. She does that which he is worthy of. She gives him her all. And Matthew's brilliant because he doesn't end here. Now we come to the final point, and it's Judas Iscariot and the price he was willing to receive for Jesus. In one of the twelve, just just by introducing him in this way, one of Jesus' closest friends. Someone who's journeyed with him, traveled with him, knew him, heard him, predict his death. One of the twelve, his name was Judas Iscariot. He went to the chief priests. It wasn't that they came to him. It's that he went to them. Why did he go? And what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What price are you guys willing to pay me for Jesus? How much is Jesus worth to you? And they say, 30 pieces of silver. The exact same price Joseph was sold into slavery. The exact same price that Exodus tells us you could buy a damaged slave for. Thirty pieces of silver. A meager, meager wage. It's what they paid the shepherds. That is what Jesus was worth to Judas Iscariot. And I need to ask you now the question, what is he worth to you? What is he worth to me? These, these words should send a chill down our spine. Like Judas heard the same messages, spent time with Jesus, and at the end, his conclusion was, Jesus, you're worth 30 pieces of silver. You can see the problem with this whole section, can't you? You can see why Matthew set it up like this. Every single person, with the exception of this nameless woman, undervalues Jesus. The disciples, Judas Iscariot, the religious leaders. And they form this perfect backdrop for her beautiful act of worship and of preparation. I don't want us to leave this passage on a, a sad note, and I don't want you to leave depressed and discouraged. I want you to leave inspired, but even more than inspired, I want you to be so compelled with regards to your own love for Jesus. And and this is what needs to happen. We miss the point of this passage if we focus in on the woman. We get the point of this passage when we focus in on the object of her faith the object of our love, the object of our devotion. It's Jesus. It's who he is. It's what he promised to her he would do and it's what we now live on this side of the cross. We know he did for us. It's Jesus, who he is, and what he's done that should compel us to love him with our lives and with our lips and with all that we are. Because he is worthy. He's the lamb who was slain. Blood was shed so that you and I would not face the judgment of eternal death. He's the one who came to give life in its abundance. Every party, every festival, every celebration doesn't come close to comparing to the marriage supper of the lamb that will be at the end of time. Because he wants to put on the biggest 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 celebration because we are his bride when we put our faith and trust in him he wants us to be in love with him because we know that he has come to bring us life and life in its abundance and make our joy complete and to satisfy every desire of our heart with good things from above he's the one who is worthy worthy of our worship what mary did for him it's because she got who Jesus was and she got what Jesus had done and she got what Jesus had promised and you and I will see that he is worthy when we see his surpassing greatness in comparison to all the things of this world so I'm not going to hold Mary up as the one that is the example and the model I want to hold up Jesus to us all tonight I just want to ask you this question. Is he worthy? What is he worth to you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy of everything. Praise from all that you have made. The worship and the adoration of all the angels, the myriad and myriad of angels in heaven. You are worthy of the praise of every soul that has been made perfect in your sight. You are worthy. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of our attention. You're worthy of all of our affections. You are worthy of all of our earthly, most precious possessions. You are worthy of worship tonight. We pray that as disciples of you, that we as thoughtful and as considerate as Mary, who thought, how could I do something in these days that would be fitting and beautiful for the one I love? And we pray that as we go from here, that we would think, how can we use our lives in such a way that is fitting and is beautiful in your sight? And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.